Are you ready to talk about all the wonderful things we saw this week? Oh, yes. So this is our our holiday extravaganza episode. Big old Christmas movie. Yes. It is that most wonderful time of the year. So what kind of holiday movie traditions do you have, Chandler? I don't really have any. I don't watch a lot of Christmas movies because I've seen a lot of them before. Well, do you watch it? Have you found yourself watching anything? Maybe not necessarily every year going out of your way, but do you watch anything consistently this time of year? The only movie I think I watch pretty much every Christmas season is Love Actually. Really? And I have never seen Love Actually. It's good. I I quite enjoy it. Uh, my mom bought the Blu-ray a few years ago and has always tells me, Jacob, this is the best movie ever. You need to see it. And we It just, is a good movie. It's still in the plastic wrapping and we just haven't watched it yet. I enjoy it. Um, I, you know, it's, I've seen most Christmas movies that I really enjoy a bunch of times. As I think most people have. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I guess I'm just tired of it now. I mean, I like, I like the Jim Carrey Grinch, even though it was kind of dumb. I like the original animated Grinch. I like both. But the animated one's a classic. I, I don't know. A lot of those Rankin-Bass movies are okay. They're just really short. Well, you're not going in for for cinematic Citizen Kane quality. But it's just, I don't know. They're novelty to me. I like them, but they're novelty. I'm going to put Christmas movies in a similar category to Star Wars movies. Yeah. Where it's the primary draw isn't the quality of the film necessarily, but the fact that they're all based on this kind of nostalgia premise. Uh-huh. Oh, well, with Christmas movies, of course, it's the holidays and everyone likes to feel getting that happy, special feeling. And then with Star Wars movies, people go to get in the happy, special feeling of the Star Wars universe. Well, weirdly enough, yeah. Well, you I mean, I don't watch holiday movies, but I watch movies that take place in snow that make me feel festive. I do like wintry movies. I love wintry movies. Like, I watch this movie all the time regardless, but in Bruges on the holiday season, great. That's an interesting choice. It's a very old, it's a cold city. There's a lot of Christmas decorations up. But it doesn't really go with the, the whole holiday spirit. Well, uh, you know what else doesn't? Uh, what? Uh, Macabre and Miss Miller. I thought about watching that the other day, too. Cause that, that's, that's a good snow movie. I love me a snowy western the one thing about watching, because I watched that recently, again, is the snow in that one. You can tell some of it is like laid on effects. Yeah. And I just had to look past it a little bit, but I noticed it a lot more the second time I watched it. Oh my God. I just watched The Searchers for the first time yesterday. Really? Yeah. Who? And the- <laughs> I thought you had seen it before. I had not. For some reason. I had not. I got it at Bookman's. It was on sale for $5, a brand new Blu-ray copy. I said, how could I not? So I took it home and I watched it yesterday. And yeah, there's some snowy bits in there that are, you know, on sets with like whatever dandruff they're using as snow. But some actual outdoor but snow yeah, shots. Some actual, uh, especially the scene with those the bison. Shots. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, oh, that looks really nice. Yeah. You know, a uh, little. It's a well shot Western. It is. Well, until you get to the day for night stuff. Yeah. Well, there's some there's some dated <laughs> stuff, but it's it's kind of charming in its own way. Well, the thing is, I don't mind, you know, like, the green screen horse riding stuff. That's okay. Mm -hmm. But Day for Night looks awful all the time. (laughs) All the time. 
You know, I think the only time I've ever ex- fully accepted Day for Night is in Lawrence of Arabia. I didn't even know they did it in Lawrence of Arabia. See? They they do do it and it it works. And I think it might just be the the simplicity of a desert. Yeah. And it, it's not like in your face kind of. I don't think they're not going for full night. In the Searchers they it was a pretty simple desert, but it still just looked like green film. I feel like we're at a, a time in technology now though that we can get away with day for night. Maybe. I don't know. It, I mean, obviously, Night's always going to look better. It's still hard. It's still difficult. It's not great, yeah. Because I, I think I've tried once or twice in Photoshop and then with just random video clips um, yeah. to do it. And it's not easy. It, I'm sure if you had really good, someone who really knew what they were doing with effects, they could probably uh, pull it off for a little bit. But it's not really worth the time. These days, you have cheap cameras that can work well in low light. So might as well just film at night. No, you're, you're not wrong. Is The Searchers on this list at all, Dino? It is. It is. Let me check the... Uh, it is number... Will be, it'll be adjusted for inflation, number seven. Oh, okay. We'll get some time then. Yes. Not to get into it now, but I quite enjoyed it. I know you're iffy about it, but I quite enjoyed it. Well, it, I, I enjoy it, but I don't think it's... I don't think it's the best Western ever made. The masterpiece that everyone seems to think it is. I don't think that or Stagecoach is, but again. They're good. They're fun movies. Fun Western. Would you consider your favorite Christmas movie to be Fanny and Alexander? That's an interesting question because... That's also just your favorite movie. I feel... I I know there's another Christmas movie out there. Um, let's take a step back because I, I feel the need to preface this conversation with the fact that I'm Jewish and... Oh, of course. But my family is mixed, so I grew up celebrating both Hanukkah and Christmas every year, and I have an overabundance of love for Christmas movies, actual Christmas movies, and wintry movies, but that's a separate thing. Um, Yeah. I think I'm a fan of wintry movies because I grew up in a desert, so I just like snow. Fair. But as for Christmas movies, Beyond Fanny and Fanny... Beyond Fanny and Alexander, I don't, I can't think of any others that would match it for me. There's just something about the, and I mean, I only watched Fanny and Alexander two years ago now, I think. Yeah. And since in those two years, it has climbed to be my favorite movie. And, you know, just that the first part of that, of the family's just celebrating Christmas and then you meet everyone and it, it has a very homey vibe. It really does. It's a very cozy set. Particularly because it's not going anywhere. It's not trying to... The plot isn't trying to get someplace. Uh, so it really feels like you're just spending a Christmas evening with this family. But you kind of need that first bit so when it starts to deviate, you kind of miss it. Yeah, that's really the, the point of... you know, It's building up the family. And also because you have the, the really the first half of that first episode of Fanny Alexander is Christmas... And the second half is afterwards when everyone goes back to their their bedrooms and all the shenanigans that go on and everyone ends up staying up the whole night mm-hmm. arguing or or uh, reminiscing about the past or, you know, the kids uh, sneaking, being up and all that. It's just it's just fun. It it best encapsulates a holiday night with the family. So, yeah, that's a, that's a similar thing. Um 
you know, there's not a lot of Thanksgiving movies, but I consider Fantastic Mr. Fox to be a Thanksgiving movie, even though it technically isn't a Thanksgiving movie. You know, it's got the it's got the autumn color palette. Um, it's got all the 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 Thanksgiving e animals. There's feasts, just like Fanny and Alexander is not really a Christmas movie, but it, I guess it does outright have Christmas. But yeah, the, the the actual movies that focus on you know Christmas as a, a main plot point never really grab me. Home Alone. Home Alone is good. Lots of fun. As a youth, I loved the movie Unaccompanied Minors. Interesting. I like Elf. Big fan of the because it's on TV every year. The uh, the animated the stop motion uh, Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. That one's nice. That was just it's just fun. Nice little. It's a, it's a good. It's more of a tradition than an actual movie. Yeah. But ever since I got rid of cable, I just don't see them anymore. You know, I think I can. I catch it without cable. Where? Uh. Well. If you have a little antenna and you get just like the basics channel, because I think it's on it's on ABC, so as long as oh, it's gotcha. not the most difficult thing to get. Here, here's another question: big controversial debate is Die Hard a Christmas movie? I don't care. <laughs> maybe I don't care. That's the most original answer I've heard. Okay, maybe it is, but the only people talking about it are the people who want you to think they're smart because they think Die Hard's a Christmas movie. Okay, well here's maybe the thing. it is. Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. Just because you take place at Christmas does not make you a Christmas movie. And you know what? I'm okay with that. You know, because you know what? What? I've never seen Die Hard. Really? Uh, I don't know. I don't care. I'm not trying to be a, a jerk when I say this, but I don't think there is a single action movie that I love. It's just a genre I do not care about. Well, I'm speechless. I know. You know how I feel about Indiana Jones. Yeah, I just I'm curious as to because it's a that's a big genre that a lot of people love. Most people love the closest thing that I can because you know when I say love I mean ten out of ten. Like Mad Max for me is like a nine out of ten. Uh, I never seen The Matrix. So you don't have any action movies in your top your favorites of all time list. Well, for example. okay, this is the only the closest thing I can think of. If you count Hot Fuzz, then yes. If you don't, then no. You could count it. Okay. A little stretch. It's it's in kind of the fade. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of tent poles of the genre. I love the car chase scene in A French Connection. The French Connection. But it's one of those things that I respect it a lot because that stuff is hard. But at the end of the day, I just don't care. I guess, like, I can see where people come from back uh, to Die Hard. That it is a Christmas movie because it does take place during Christmas. For me, a Christmas movie has to focus on Christmas and its iconography. It might also be that there's no snow in Die Hard and I just need snow in my Christmas movies. That's true. That is true. I can totally see the argument for it. It just is never... Yeah. You know, you watch it whenever. It's an action movie first and maybe a Christmas movie second. Uh, I know you don't go on Twitter. I don't. Well, I have been going on more just because I want to see people's reaction to to Rise of Skywalker. But there is a Twitter account I love called The Last Blockbuster. Mm-hmm. It's just a meme account. There is a single blockbuster left and they have this account, but it's just like a bunch of jokes. And one I retweeted the other day was, People always ask us if Die Hard is a Christmas movie and our answer is always the same. 
please rent something. It's a good answer. <laughs> and that is how I feel about the debate. Good stuff. I recommend Fanny and Alexander. It's a good time. I'll probably I'll probably rewatch it this year. I'll probably finish the last two episodes tomorrow. Because as we were saying this, I just realized I never finished it. You never did, and that big sad. And had I remembered that yesterday, I would not have watched The Searchers. Kind of on another tangent, I've been watching the five-hour uh, movie from Japan, Happy Hour. All at once? No, it's on Amazon Prime. and Oh, it is? Yeah, and it's it's split up into three parts. Okay. I don't, I don't think it was meant to be split up into three parts because the first part just ends in the middle of a scene. Interesting. So I watched the first two parts and I haven't finished the, the third part yet. And for you, when you go, when you like log films on Letterboxd, I'm assuming you log upon completion of the film. I do. So with Annie and Alexander, you're not going to log that until you're done, even though you're hours into it. I, yeah, no. Not until the credits roll. Because it's interesting that I look at Letterboxd less as like a a diary of completion and more of a diary of what did I do on this day. And even if I don't finish something, yeah, it feels like I'm leaving something out because that's what I did. I did watch Happy Hour on Tuesday. I just didn't finish it. Yeah. But I'll forget that I ever did that if I don't log it. No, I, I if you look at my Letterboxd... I write a passage for pretty much every movie. It is more of a diary for me. I think I've shown it to you before. I have a giant Excel spreadsheet of thing of movies that I, I log. Oh, God. I have not. No? I've never shown this to you? I don't think you have. Okay, so I have a... This was before I knew about Letterboxd, and it was just logging every movie I saw, who I saw it with, where I saw it, and then things like director, how long the movie is. Uh-huh. Uh, the rating, so if it's rated R or whatever. Uh, so this is the third year. I'm completing the third spreadsheet of these things. And there's just a massive amount of data for every single year, every single month. Well, now I have to see it. Oh, it's it's color-coded. Oh, my God. They're, well, it's automatically color-coded. Oh. So when I type in, this movie is 90 minutes long. It has a different color for 90 minutes versus 120 minutes. Oh, my God. And Well, I set it up all the way a few years ago, and I don't know. <laughs> Before Letterboxd? Yeah. When I found Letterboxd, I kind of, my interest dipped a little bit in uh -huh. maintaining it, but I still do. I went back and filled it in, so. I don't know. Letterboxd gets me to watch more movies, I feel. It certainly, I'll let you know, you know, a little secret, I do look at other people's uh, how many movies they've seen, and it has encouraged me to to watch more. I just hit a thousand uh, a week or two ago. Yeah, I'm now at a thousand fourteen, but that was a fun milestone. Well, congratulations! What was the thousands the thousandth movie again? Um, let me go through it real quick. Hold on. Oh, Blind Spotting. Was it? Yeah, great movie. Okay. I thought it was something else, but okay. No. It works for me. I, I tried to make it like this, you know, big event. Yeah. But it just like, kind yeah. of, it passed you by. Because, well, because I kept thinking for like, I stopped watching movies for like a week. So I'm like, nope, the next one I got to do is going to be amazing. It's got to be amazing. And I couldn't decide on anything. So one day I was just like, eh, I'll watch Blind Spotting. It was good. It was really good. Good. So I should amazing. watch it. Blind Spotting 
is the is the complete opposite of um, the last black man in San Francisco. They deal with similar issues, take place in similar cities with similar characters, but where black last black man is very somber and artistic and still blind spotting is very like high energy. And I, I love both of them. I don't know. I would, I wouldn't have described last black man in San Francisco as still. Okay. Not still, but it's, it's a much more majestic, slower pace. It's a majestic, slower paced, somber movie that sort of, you know, reflects on the city. Whereas blind spotting, it's like, okay, Last Black Man is crying about gentrification and blind spotting is yelling about it. They're both they're both essentially the same well no, they're not. I'll, I'm just gonna say this. Yeah. The climax of blind spotting is a rap verse, and it is amazing. It is you need to watch that movie with subtitles. It is incredible. I, I will watch it now. I still like Last Black Man a little bit more, but blind spotting is amazing. We'll we'll talk about Last Black Man in our your our review of 2019 because that oh yes that is a one hell of a film. I love that movie, and I'm surprised it didn't get more attention. I re- I, I heard a little me. about it, but nothing particularly nothing with award season coming up. Nothing. Yeah, anything. That's really. the guy's first feature too. It was great. But speaking of holiday traditions, and this will lead into one of our main subjects. Yeah, uh, this is the third year in a row that I have gone to the Loft Cinema in Tucson, Arizona to see the Star Wars Holiday Special. Oh no. <laughs> Chandler, it every year, I think this year I it, it was before I went on Wednesday and on Tuesday yeah. I was thinking, do I really want to go? This sounds kind of dull. And then I went and it it is just always the best time oh, no. ever. And I think it's ruined the idea that the Star Wars Holiday Special is bad for me. Oh no! Because it's, I have such a good time that how could something I that brings it. that much joy be bad? Precisely, precisely. I walked up to the concessions counter and I was looking and like, "Give me the largest beer you have." Oh, <laughs> and and it was oh, a large no. beer, and my bill was quite large because of it. How how big was the beer? I think it was a. I think it was just a twenty-two ounce, but but still, it was in a plastic cup, so it was a bit unwieldy to to handle. Oh God! And I hadn't eaten much, so it did. It hit the spot. And uh, have you seen anything of the uh, the holiday special? I have seen the best of the worst, and that is it. I much prefer the best of the worst episode where they don't discuss the holiday <laughs> special. Well, but I'll- yes. I tried to get you and Nick down here for... I, uh, I wanted to go. I just felt bad about making him drive again. Well, maybe next year. Wherever I'm at, I will always try to come back for it. Because it's just... They do a whole little uh, costume contest every year beforehand. Yeah. They, oh, no. Do you know the, the bad lip-reading Star Wars stuff? Oh, yeah. They play... The year before, they played the bad lip-reading song from A New Hope. And then this year they played the Seagulls song from Empire Strikes Back. Oh, God. And that was fun because the entire crowd was just singing along. And it's it's just a good time. Everyone's having fun. 
laughing. It's an entire, I feel like it'd be an entire room of people watching a movie, ironically. Yes, that's exactly what it is. Well, the people who are there for the first time, probably less so because they're just curious to see. Because, you know, you, it, it's inf- the Star Wars holiday special is infamous. Yeah. And they just want to see how bad it is. And then everyone else, I think it's pretty good. It's split 50-50 between people who have seen it before and who haven't. And the people who have seen it before are there most certainly to watch it ironically. And now, do you ever get the case of people who show up thinking, oh, it's not that bad. And then them being furious that they spent 90 minutes watching it? Actually, it's more like two hours because there's commercials. Oh, no. Chandler, the commercials are the best part. <laughs> I think the the there's a there's a GM one where it's they have a slogan that they keep repeating in the most dull monotone voice. It's people building transportation to better serve transportation. Like it's just the most plucky seventies thing. All- <laughs> there's one where a man comes on screen and says, "I'm here to talk about the Women's Sewing Guild of America," <laughs> and oh, no. it's just so random. Is this on like a bootleg DVD? Yeah, or they like play it from YouTube. Okay, every copy is in existence is a bootleg, and it's it's like a VHS quality thing. Oh, amazing! I bet it looks great on the screen. Oh, it there's a commercial for a little like dumb toy seventies toy robot called Tobor, and the big <laughs> the big twist is at the end of at the end of the commercial the the commercial announcer guy says Tobor. It's robot spelled backwards. Oh, no. <laughs> the commercials are just hilarious. and I'd go just for that. The movie is too. Well, here's my question. How does it compare to The Rise of Skywalker? Uh, well, the Star Wars Holiday Special is essentially someone coked out of their mind. Mm-hmm. Just throwing whatever random stuff they can think of a circus or a a song in the cantina band or just random stuff and everything takes about 20 minutes too long to get through Mm -hmm. the rise of skywalker is the reverse side of that where it's uh like drug-filled crazed filmmaking where they're throwing anything they can think of and then doing that for like five minutes and then moving on to the next thing so you don't get bored. I am just... <sighs> How did you feel after finishing The Rise of Skywalker? When the credits rolled, what was the feeling? It's kind of indescribable. It really is. Because I think the moment that it was over, I just thought to myself, I feel so bad for Ryan Johnson. Just so, so bad. But it was just this weird feeling of emptiness. You know, when The Force Awakens came out, that was a huge deal. Everyone's going crazy. Huge deal. It's, It's the highest grossing movie domestically of all time. Everyone saw it. Everyone saw it. Even people who didn't care. Yeah, I was one of those people. I'm not huge into Star Wars. I'll preface by saying that. I like it. I'm just not a, a, a huge fan. But when the the movie was over, all I could think to myself was, did that really happen? D- I didn't even remember, like, was, was The Force Awakens just a dream? Whatever happened to that world that everybody was so excited about? 
every movie in this trilogy throughout everything before it and at the end i'm asking myself wait what happened it's the oddest trilogy i can uh, i've ever it seen it really is cuz each of the three movies is doing something completely different cuz the force awakens is a it's a reboot it's playing it very safe very simply yeah very much a homage to the original trilogy and mm-hmm. then the last jedi is more kind of adventurous the filmmaking itself is very adventurous it's going new places it's trying new things the the opposite of a soft reboot essentially it's not doing yeah uh, the empire strikes back and then you have this movie where it's throwing everything at the wall and just seeing even if it doesn't stick just shove it in there and pay homage to everything do something new but not too new yeah and it it's breathtaking it is just it is probably the most expensive fan fiction ever made it feels so much like a fan fiction full-on confession here i read star wars fan fiction oh do you i love star wars but i'm not i'm not someone who's going out on on twitter or social media and telling everyone that last jedi sucks or quite frankly i think the fandom is way way out of balance way out of whack yeah Oh yeah, and they just need to calm the f- down. It's more so. It's more of an it's an internal fandom for me. Of I really enjoy the universe. I really enjoy the stories and stuff like that. And I enjoy reading alternative kind of stuff from fan fiction, and really just the good stuff. There's some really quality stuff out there, um, and I also like the Star Wars Legends, all the old books that Disney got rid of. There's some fun stories in there that I that I read. And then this feels very much like like that, where it's, they just did whatever they felt like. Because where Ryan Johnson made a movie where he was very much aware of expectations, the genre conventions and stuff like that, and built on that, this is just everything. It, it's, it's, the, it's a melting pot of Star Wars, of whatever, whatever it wants to be. It, it is. It is just the biggest and then movie of all time. I cannot preface this enough. This movie is singular in its achievement. There's nothing else like it. Even in Star Wars. I'm just... It's... Still, I saw it two days ago. I'm just baffled. Because it's... I almost want to say... Almost? It might be... Say it. I could see it being one of the worst. So it might be the worst Star Wars movie. Okay. Now here's what I here's now let me let me say this. Yes. I do think technically the prequels are worse. Nothing quite uh, is as bad as the prequels. But when I watch the prequels, I at least get some sort of entertainment out of seeing something that fails on almost every level. Well, were you not entertained? By the Rise of Skywalker? Yeah. Maybe? I don't know. Well, here, here's the thing. I need to watch it again because a lot of the entertainment for me came from sheer dumbstruck wonder at what are they doing <laughs> on a minute-by-minute basis. The, the prequel's still bad, but I could see where George was going. He didn't get there, but I could see where he was going. It was like watching 
a home movie. It was like being a dad and watching a home movie your five-year-old made. Yeah, it's terrible. And, you know, it's got a lot of crayon art. And, you know, the camera's upside down. But you're like, oh, this little kid's trying to make something. I just had no idea what was going on in The Rise of Skywalker. It felt like they took every deleted scene and unused footage from the first two movies, added in a few scenes with Palpatine, and were like, oh, here we go. It is just... I'm struggling to find words. I have a new appreciation for both The Last Jedi and for the prequels after seeing this film. Oh, yeah. The prequels, again, I still don't think they're good, but I do get enjoyment out of how not good they are. Because at least, again, like I said, the prequels, they tried. I don't think anybody in this movie, aside from the visual effects people and the actors, cared at all. I think you're being a little harsh. I think they did. I think this is just, I think this is a case of genuine, misguided fan filmmaking. That's what it feels like to me. I don't see anything. I don't necessarily even see the the corporate hand of Disney too much in it. I do see it. But I think this is this is a product of JJ and company. Cause you can tell JJ Abrams does have a love of Star Wars. Particularly with The Force Awakens. Oh, yeah. He was very much insistent on, you know, going back to the roots of of practical effects and sets. And even there's some pictures from Rise of Skywalker of of him looking at the sets and the 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 creatures, the aliens and stuff like that. There is passion here. Misguided passion. There was passion behind the prequels too. And perhaps not enough outside checks and balances to rein in the yes, what was going on. Because Disney had a say, but also J.J. Abrams had a say. And it seems like a very interesting mix between the, the corporate desires of Lucasfilm and Disney and the kind of fanboy desires of J.J. and crew. That is where I see the hand of Disney. Because, you know, again, as soon as it was over, I thought to myself, okay, the only good thing to come out of this trilogy, I think, was The Last Jedi. And I do think it's a good movie. I think it's easily the best of the sequels. But it was just baffling to me just how the first movie, Force Awakens set up this new world, eased us back in. The second movie, let's get real crazy with it. And the entire third movie was spent, like, viciously scrubbing the second movie out of it and then throwing apart what they had left for the rest of the story. You, It's it's sort of like, you know how you can watch episode two and episode three without really watching episode one? Yeah. Because nothing really happens? I kind of feel that way about this. I feel like you can go from The Force Awakens to The Rise of Skywalker and miss essentially nothing. See, I'm going to thoroughly disagree with you here. Okay. And this is partially what JJ talks about in the article that I shared with you, is that a lot of people, and I did too, read into it as him uh, deliberately retconning and almost attacking The Last Jedi. Yeah. It was less of that than we, at least from J.J. himself, he says that he has nothing but admiration for Ryan Johnson, which I'm sure is true, regardless of whatever he did. 
Yeah. And that it wasn't necessarily a trying to erase it, but add on to it in a his own way. And his own way just happens to be a way that looks like backtracking. Because, of course, he did the first film. Yeah. And I think that if he hadn't done the first film, or we had a new director here, it would still be similar things that might seem like backtracking, but they're not. But it's it's weird. Like, the the Rise of Skywalker is a weird movie on every level. It There's nothing really simple about it. For me, the one obvious example of this is people say that Luke Skywalker was fixed in this movie, where he's back and he's treating the lightsaber with respect and all that. And, you know. Do people say that? Yeah. Because um, people really hated it when he threw the lightsaber over his shoulder and he wasn't the Luke Skywalker they remembered, right? And they felt that this was a course correction for that. And I have to say, did people actually watch The Last Jedi? Which I don't think some people did. I think they were just so hopped up on their anger that they didn't. And because it's very much a progression of him being starting the film as an old, bittered man. And then he comes to the rescue at the end of the day. Yeah. So there's nothing being course corrected here with Luke Skywalker. He changed by the end of the movie to be that person who would hand Rey her lightsaber back and say, treat this with more respect. You, You need to you can't hide away on this island like I did. That makes complete sense. Following The Last Jedi. There are progressions from The Last Jedi. They are just hidden underneath the mass of other stuff. Because there's so much that happens. Yes. I'd like to offer a counter-argument. Okay. But to do so, we must get into spoilers. So, let's... General thoughts. Quick, like, do you recommend it or not? Uh, Was it okay? Uh, I I don't know. If I... uh, I... Do I recommend it? Yeah. You saw the first two. Might as well see the third one. That's exactly how I felt going in. That's exactly how I feel going out. That's I feel like a lot of people. Um, I'm just going to quickly summarize and say I, I highly enjoyed my time, but that's also because it's terrible. It is bad. It is. Su- it was such a mess that on I was just enthralled from the minute one trying to figure out what was going on. And I had fun... In that regard. And I, I do think there's some interesting stuff. Like, it's it's entertaining on another level for people who like just mindless action. I think it is the closest we've gotten to prequel levels of bad, while not necessarily getting that bad. It's a different kind of bad. The new Star Wars movies, the ones that I don't like, I hate more what they stand for than what they are. Yeah. And this is how I feel about Rogue Ones, how I feel about The Rise of Skywalker. Whereas the prequels, I hate what they stand for, and I also hate what they are. So, yeah, not good. Definitely the worst in the trilogy. But it is it is very... If you ever wanted to know what a $150 million movie made by a 13-year-old would look like, go see Rise of the Skywalker. Exactly. Yeah. I had fun. I think other people will have fun. I don't think it's good in any, in any regard, but... Um, I think there's something to be gleaned out of this. I think also, if you think, if you don't like The Last Jedi, go see this. Because it definitely made me like like The Last Jedi even more. <laughs> um, All right, but yeah, so spoilers. To get into, so spoilers. Um, 
Okay, so the reason I feel there's a lot of things. Yes, I agree that there are logical progressions from The Last Jedi to The Rise of Skywalker. But there are also some severe backtracking things that I feel like are very much spitting in the face of what The Last Jedi intended to establish. So, first one, I think is a big one, is um, I feel like the character of Rose was completely destroyed. That's an interesting discussion on its own because she had it is. so much thrown at her on social media. Yes. The terrible stuff. And I almost feel like they diminished her role not because they they did they wanted to offend fans. They diminished her role Oh, for her. For her. But yeah, but that's another thing. I'm sure she's very happy not being in the spotlight anymore because, man, was it rough for her. Yeah. But also, I feel like at the same time, part of that is you're giving in to those Last Jedi haters that do not want to see more of her. So that's one. Let me let me just preface before you continue that I see this as a backtrack from The Last Jedi, but I don't think it is – I don't see as much malice necessarily than than other people might. I don't think J.J. – some things were very deliberate, like yeah. definitely Rose was, but other things were just just the way J.J. wanted to do things, and it was just a result of he directed The Force Awakens and wanted to continue some stuff and didn't didn't care so much. Yes, and I agree that's what he wanted to do, but when you have an entire movie to establish certain things that you're just going to revert, what was the point of even having those things in the first place? Because the other one... I feel like is this very concrete idea in The Last Jedi that the Jedi and the Sith need to end. No more Jedi, no more Sith. There's no more Sith. They made a very clear point in killing Snoke. I feel like that was Ryan Johnson trying to say, no more big bad evil Sith guy. We're done. We're getting rid of Luke, the big good hero guy. We're getting rid of Snoke, the big bad evil guy. And we're just going to try to balance it out, equalize it, get rid of both sides. And I felt like that was the movie very much trying to get rid of that archetype. And then Palpatine comes back for literally no reason. <laughs> literally no reason. Not a single part of the other two movies foreshadowed this happening at all. Yes, there was some mystery about Ray's parents. Uh, I didn't think that meant Palpatine had sex with a woman. Which he did. That, that's all I could think about when he, when he was talking about that. That is the only thing I can think about. And, and I'm just like, he did? I just... Uh, or was it artificial insemination? Or what, 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 what's happening here? I don't know. Again, I, I don't care if Palpatine comes back. Whatever. Dumb, but okay. But they did not even attempt to establish any concrete reason as to how or why. Well, so this all goes back to the fact that there was no plan after the there was no the plan. Force Awakens, and then Ryan Johnson picked it up. You know, Force Awakens went left. Ryan Johnson went right, and then uh, the Rise of Skywalker uh, did a somersault. They're just each doing their own thing, and that's the thing. It's that um, the original trilogy wasn't planned. No, but it was it was like a sort of improv thing, where Lucas had this thing. And then for the next one, like, okay, let's take that and go here. Okay, third one, let's take that and go here. It was JJ saying, let's do this. And Ryan saying, no, let's do this. And JJ saying, that's cute, but actually let's go back to this. 
I felt like if there was a logical progression from two to three, taking it in a new direction, whatever. You don't need to have a plan. You don't need to have everything planned out. End goals would be nice. Yeah, an but outline you had, or something. You would have thought they would have done that at least. It just it just makes two seem like a huge waste of time. Well, here's the thing. I think people place a lot of blame on uh, the Last Jedi for kind. I of don't. This, no, I know, but for the 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 trilogy as a whole. Right. Yeah. That it messed up the trilogy. And this is a JJ had to do a bunch of weird things in order to fix it. Yeah. Wrong, first off. Yes. But two, I agree. the problem stems from The Force Awakens. It's it, the, the foundations of where we're at now are there. And this, like, I think there are small things in The Force Awakens that really screw over the rest of the trilogy. Because I was, when you, you brought up the original trilogy and how that is very much improv. And I was thinking, why does that work? And the single most important thing I think about every single Star Wars film, the prequels included, is that there's a time jump between the two of them. Yeah. And I think cannot underestimate the fact that The Force Awakens deliberately leads directly into a sequel. Like there's no, you cannot write a sequel for The Force Awakens that doesn't pick up immediately after it. Because it ends with Rey handing Luke the lightsaber. I think you could have cut The Force Awakens when Rey and Chewbacca leave to go find Luke. Having that kind of open-endedness, particularly because you didn't have anything planned, having that open-endedness of you don't see Luke and being able to give the next film more creative freedom to skip ahead or even stay, even not have a time jump. But it feels more like The Last Jedi was fit into a hole from the beginning because of the way the the Force Awakens ended, and Ryan Johnson did the best he could with that, and then now with the ending of the Last Jedi puts the Rise of Skywalker into a very specific hole, and then Disney compounds on that because they have expectations after the the fallout from the Last Jedi, so it's kind of this perfect storm of films building off of each other in a negative way that leads to nowhere yeah and yet so much stuff happens and what i again what i appreciate about the last jedi is that yeah the force awakens really didn't leave a lot of room up for imagination and ryan johnson thought okay how can i take this and do something different because the force awakens was not something different it was fun but it was very familiar territory in just about every aspect i think he did his best I think he just – he needed to do something different. He needed to do something weird. I don't think everything worked, but I think as a whole it worked. I enjoyed going to the Rise of Skywalker. I knew that it was going to be a sub, uh, not a subversion, but a reversion back to Force Awakens. But as I'm sitting here thinking about it, I kind of liked where he was going with The Last Jedi because you take something as big as Star Wars, these intergalactic wars, battles, conflicts – and The Last Jedi is simplifying it. It is narrowing it down. It is taking the bigness of both the good and bad, bringing down the big parts, you know, Snoke and uh, Luke. And then it becomes a lot more personal. And I thought, okay, this is interesting. Because the original trilogy started out personal, got bigger and bigger and bigger. And this one starts big, gets small. And I thought, okay, this would be an interesting way to end it. But no, they went from big to small to 
the biggest it could ever get. <laughs> and it just feels like I almost felt like this should have gotten even weirder with a third movie. Uh, they got they got pretty weird because I honestly think it did get weird, but not in the good kind. Well, I think the good kind. While I was watching the movie, I had to literally prevent myself, put my hands over my mouth and prevent myself from laughing out loud at multiple times in the movie out of just shock of what what was happening. Can I tell you the exact moment that I lost it? Sure. So it just got increasingly stupid as it went on. Um, Hux being the spy. Oh, thought, okay. So oh, that was my no. first example. I as soon as <laughs> Hux turns out to be the spy, I laugh at that, and then he gets shot two minutes later, and I laugh at that. <laughs> it's just you're introducing something that seems important, and then nope, it's not. I there's that. Okay, again, everything got stupid. Hux being a spy, stupid. Um, Ray being a Palpatine really stupid well see some of this stuff feels campy to me and that's okay particularly like the Hux being a spy like it makes sense it's over the top but I didn't have an issue with that necessarily it was too over the top for me but the the fact that a minute later they just end that whole subplot yeah cool (laughs) I think the exact moment where I just thought f*** it whatever I'm here for it what what else you got was when the reveal that Chewie was still alive, and then Ray was like, oh, it was a different transporter he was on. <laughs> That's when I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Here's my, my other favorite one that I laughed at. Was, was when they revealed that Star, Star Destroyers now have the planet-killing capability. Oh, no. <laughs> Just like, eh, Why? What, can you, JJ, can you not write something? Can you not write a movie where a planet doesn't get destroyed? Uh, but, okay, so here's the thing with, um, all right, so with the whole Chewy thing, the movie does take some interesting turns. It starts to, to feel like it has some teeth to it, like it's making decisions. And then on multiple occasions, it reverses those interesting decisions. So they quote-unquote kill off Chewie like Ray loses control and kills him off I, I'll admit when it happened I thought that was interesting it was shocking and I like I felt something other than just disbelief at nonsense on screen it, it felt like a moment it felt like a character growth moment for Ray and something interesting like where are they going from here so it, it felt like the movie was retconning The Last Jedi and then it started retconning itself yeah which was just funny to me because then at the end you have Kylo Ren appears to die, gets thrown off the, the thing by Emperor Palpatine, and then he comes back. And then Rey appears to die. For no reason. And Kylo Ren saves her, and then he dies. And it's just like, stop. There's so many death fakeouts in this movie. Personally, me personally, I would have thought it'd be a really, a really interesting movie. It'd been a different movie altogether, because you'd have to set this up from minute one. If Rey died at the end i felt that would be a very interesting decision yeah and i think it it would have i don't know it felt it felt wrong to me to have kylo die it it felt like you you were giving him this arc of redemption and then just like darth vader you kill him off D- do something new for f- sake 
this is this is yeah this is another thing that it made me retroactively like i i love a new hope i love the empire strikes back i think return of the jedi is kind of stupid but i thought you know what it could have been stupider return of the jedi is a great movie compared to this I know, and I was like, this is literally just the dumbest version of Return of the Jedi that you could possibly do. Okay, but I loved the Emperor. Oh, yeah, he was just ridiculous. <laughs> he said, do it! I almost clapped when he said, and, do it. And then when he uh, he did the lightning thing on all the ships, I was just like, yeah, this oh is, my this god, is, you have gone peak ridiculousness here, and I'm here for it. <laughs> it's not good. It's not good Star Wars. I want something different. Oh, no, it's bad, but I just thought, whatever. He, this man is the most evil man that was ever evil. And I was just like, okay, whatever. At least I can see this guy. I love this guy. But oh. but there's no there's no consequences for things. There's, there's no concrete understanding of the new elements that the world introduces, like the Knights of Ren. Who are they? They just show up every once in a while. You're not sure what... You're not even sure what they're doing there. Oh, I... And I, the, and then the whole like power structure of the First Order. Kylo Ren is supposed to be in charge of this whole thing, and he's just running around in a starfighter doing things. You know, I will say this. I think the worst crime that this movie commits, it, it kind of ruins Kylo Ren for me. And I like Kylo Ren. I think that he had the, the least problematic, until his death, the least problematic part of the film. I don't know. He just... I really like him in the first two movies. I liked him here. I'm just going to say it. I thought it was... Uh, his redemption was rushed. Could have spent more time on it and all that. But I, what I got was... Part of it was a little satisfying. I, I think when he got redeemed and on, he just became... I don't even think he said anything after that. No, not really. I think they really could have focused more on that. That's interesting to me. He is by far the most interesting... I like Ray too. I love Ray too, and I love Daisy Ridley. She did a great job in this movie, and both of them really, Ray and Kylo, were were done a little bit of a disservice. They, I agree, not because of anything they didn't do. Well, let me take that back. Not because of anything that wasn't there, but stuff that they didn't spend enough time on. The arcs are there, the character progressions there. It all it it makes sense from the Last Jedi. It carries over a little bit, uh, although it's buried under nonsense. But it, the movie's just distracted by all this other random stuff that doesn't matter. I feel I feel like the of the entire trilogy, um, Finn is only good in the first movie. Finn had a nice little arc in The Force Awakens, and he did nothing for the next two movies. But I feel like the most wasted character, Poe had nothing to do. Poe did things. I feel like Poe, Poe, I don't know. I feel like Poe was supposed to be this trilogy's Han Solo. And Oscar Isaac did his damnedest. He's having because fun. I thought he was definitely having fun, fun character. But I don't know. I feel like this was the most he had to do in this movie. But still, as a whole, I thought, eh. Also, this movie more than the other two. So many characters that don't mean anything. Poe's helmeted love interest, the horse lady on the Death Star planet. Do you remember at the end when you you get the sense that the movie thinks you care about her? Oh yeah, with uh, is that is that Lando's kid? I don't know. Who cares? Lando did nothing too. Lando was in it for a shot. Like I I feel like they were trying to be be uh they were restraining themselves with him. I'm like, don't restrain yourself. Give us Lando if you're giving us him. 
Lando was in it for the trailer. Really? That He's in it in three scenes that take three, place? Literally three. Three scenes, three minutes Where you meet total. him, where you meet him, where you see him again, and then when he's in the ship. Yeah. No, I guess he talks to the girl at the end. So four. Four, four scenes. And he did nothing. But I will say, the saving grace of this movie, I love the little droid mechanic. The little alien. Uh, uh, I like Babu Frick. <laughs> yeah. He was the only enjoyment I got in this whole movie. I kind of like C-3PO too. C-3, I thought the they really stepped up their C-3PO comedy game here. He was the, yeah, the funniest oh, yes. part of the movie. Genuinely. He was. Like when they fall into that pit or whatever, the like uh, the, the serpent pit. And he's like, I didn't hear you call my name, but I am okay. <laughs> I thought, oh, great. C-3PO's funny again. It was interesting to me that I was caring more about C-3PO than most of the other characters on screen for a portion of this movie. Because at that point, they're like the only characters that survive. <laughs> well, because it feels like the plot is like shoving characters to do things. And then, of course, C-3PO is just there, which makes him interesting because the plot isn't worried about contriving him into certain things. Yeah. But it felt like a video game at certain points, like in that, in the, particularly in the, the first, everything up until the, the third act, where it's like, Go here, get this. No, now we have to do that. Oh my god, the first like 15 minutes of this movie is insane. I thought we learned our lesson from Rogue One that you really should not have more than like five planets or main locations in your movie. Because after that, it starts to just get fuzzy. Oh my god, they're jumping from like Kylo to Poe and Finn to Rey chilling with rocks to Kylo again. And I'm like, what's going on? We have like 10 locations in the first 10 minutes of this movie. It's Ugh. insane. Princess Leia was good. Yeah, she was good, but I, 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 it's really hard to not see that it was just unused footage. Eh, it worked for me. It, it was fine. I noticed but it, but I didn't care. I enjoyed Carrie seeing Carrie Fisher one last time. Oh, can I just say? Okay, yeah, there are so many dumb little things in this movie where I think, why is that there? What is this? And it's hard to keep track of them all. But the one that just baffles me the most: Carrie Fisher, Princess Leia died doing what exactly getting kylo ren's attention in the middle of a fight it was not clear i don't know what was going on she's like oh i need to do this and then little uh eyeglass wearing alien is like she's got to do this but it's gonna kill her and they're like okay what is she gonna do she she closes her eyes kylo pauses she dies he dies he's revived and i'm like wait what why what what did you do why did you know you could... What? The movie looks good. I will say this. Um, when they did the, uh, uh, um, you know, Luke fighting Leia scene, you know, and you go back and you do yeah. the... I thought that looked really good. It did. It was not a because uh, they Rogue didn't One talk. Princess Leia thing. <laughs> yeah. You, you were only on him for a few seconds. Mark Hamill, yeah, you're only on him for a few seconds in the dark with a helmet covering most of their head. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, under these circumstances, it works. So The Force Awakens is a polished script. It accomplishes everything it sets out to do, yep. and it accomplishes it almost 100% the whole time. It's no Citizen Kane. It's not trying to be art. It knows what it is, and it does it. It recaptures the tone of Star Wars. It reminds everybody what Star Wars is. And then The Last Jedi feels like a very passionately written script that could have used maybe another draft just to iron out some of the, the small holes in it. Yeah. And then this movie feels like the very first draft of an outline that they went with. And it's just, it's interesting seeing the progression of, 
of quality of where you can see because the last jedi has plot holes in it it does and it, you can look past them where you can't and i can understand people who can't but it's clear from the force awakens that the quality the the writing becomes a little less tight which with each movie force awakens is a jj abrams movie the last jedi is a ryan johnson movie the rise of skywalker is a star wars movie I can't I cannot bring myself to hate it. That's the thing is that there's it's it's competently made garbage. I'm very curious to see what I'm going to go see it again this week. I'm curious to see what I think on a second viewing. It is the closest thing I think to a factory made movie I've seen yet in this universe. Although I think it it's too strange to be a factory made movie. That's why that's why I think it's strange. I don't I don't mean by it's a it's a it's a movie made by a Disney committee. Right. I don't mean it's a board meeting movie. I mean, it is a robot who has seen all the Star Wars movies and tried to make a Star Wars movie based off that data. I'd like to dedicate this last part of this discussion to me just saying that I think J.J. Abrams is a hack and a fraud. Okay. I do not like J.J. Abrams. I respect J.J. Abrams. I do not like J.J. Abrams. I had a feeling before seeing this that J.J. Abrams is just Spielberg light, and this only solidified that opinion. Um, I'm just going to wrap up my thoughts by saying that throughout the whole film, there was just, I was shell-shocked at what was happening, and I was highly engaged and entertained because of how crazy things were. And then the, the last couple minutes where everyone's congratulating each other, and then we go to Ray, who visits the, the Skywalker home on, on Tatooine. And that's where it stopped. The movie finally took a breath, stopped being crazy. And I finally had a moment to realize that this was all a load of garbage and that I didn't care. <laughs> like I, I, the movie was clearly wanting me to feel something at the end with the two suns, <laughs> the sunset. And I'm like, I just watched two hours of, like you said, a, a 13 year old just smashing toys together. And it was fun for that reason. But as soon as you start trying to get me to feel something, I won't because you didn't put in the correct time and effort into making things meaningful. When I got to that part, that's when I went, oh, I forgot. This is Star Wars. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember that. That's from A New Hope. Why? Why is she? The more I'm thinking about it, why is she there? Why is she? Uh, Don't ask questions. Just I just just go along for the ride. I am buying this movie when it comes out on Blu-ray solely for the special features. I'll be very curious to see. I hope there's there's a bunch of maybe a commentary and some behind the scenes. You ever seen the behind the scenes for The Hobbit? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's heartbreaking. And I like those more than the actual movies. Well, and for The Last Jedi, they had a whole documentary, like a, a legit documentary. Of, oh, I haven't seen this. Yeah. The, I think it's entitled The Director and the Jedi. I would and love to see this. The, the whole production of, you know, detailing Ryan Johnson's process and then Mark Hamill's frustration with things. And it's in, it's interesting. And I hope they do something like that where you can get a little peek into J.J.'s process. I will say this, too. After watching Brick, Knives Out, um, watching The Last Jedi a second time, I can confidently say if you gave Ryan Johnson this whole trilogy, it would have been amazing. I really do think it would have been amazing. I think people get distracted because people say that The Force Awakens was good, but it wasn't what it needed to be. 
I think you needed to start the new trilogy by doing something new and not build it off of nostalgia. Because as soon as you start doing that, you're running into problems. And The the Force Awakens was a good movie. It was fun and entertaining, but it wasn't what it should have been. It was wasted potential that brought us to here. Even the diehard Star Wars fans. I don't know how they can defend this one. I don't know. If you like schlock. I don't even know if you can call it schlock. It's schlock. Endgame was a better finale than Star Wars did. Whatever. I'm done. Don't, don't cry that it's over. Smile that it's over. Well, it's over for now. At least there's like a good, at least four or five years before we have to start thinking about it. Uh, I'm giving it two. What am I saying? The Mandalorian's still on. Whatever. I'm, I'm hoping. I'm cautiously optimistic that Star Wars, the main trilogy being over, maybe they'll be able to turn over a new leaf, get some new interesting things going on in there, but we'll have to wait and see. In the meantime, let's just sit back and anticipate the Benoit Blanc Cinematic Universe. We watched The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, which is a movie from John Cassavetes. Starring... Jackie Treehorn. It is Jackie Treehorn, isn't it? It is Jackie Treehorn. Oh, wow. Yeah. I knew he looked familiar. (laughs) Yep. And you and I are not the biggest fan of John Cassavetes. Nope. (laughs) Uh, We haven't exactly seen all that much. He's an actor's director. I've seen A Woman Under the Influence, which I like quite a bit. And then I've seen Opening Night, which I don't like. Never finished. I've seen... uh, This is my second attempt to watch Killing a Chinese Bookie. And I've seen Faces, and Faces was a little much for me. So, what did you think of The Killing of a Chinese Bookie? Oh, uh, you know what? Okay, important distinction to make. Yeah. Which version did you watch? I watched the short, the, I think it's the... It's the, it's technically the, the new, director's cut. Yeah. Yeah. The new version. So, just for people on who aren't Amazon aware... Amazon Prime. Yeah. So just for the people who aren't aware, there is a the original version, which came out in 76, I believe. It was about two hours, 20 minutes. Um, came out. It was a flop. I think it was a critical flop, too. I don't know. And then two years later, John Cassavetes decides to recut it to make it more efficient. And this cut is an hour and 48 minutes. The first time I tried to watch this movie, I watched the original cut, the longer cut. And all I remember is there's about 10 or 15 minutes in the beginning before he even gets to his club. And it's a lot more, let's just hang out with his character for a bit. And I never finished it because I thought it was boring. Um, And I can see why he had it, you know, because again, this is more of a character study than a plot driven movie. And I can see why you'd want to hang out with that character more. But I was 20 minutes into it and it was going nowhere. And I thought, okay, what am I doing? I, I, Watch going into this cut, I was thinking of that, that uh, me quitting the first time, but I was uh, pleasantly surprised. I kind of enjoyed this actually. Not amazing. I'm not crazy about it, but I kind of enjoyed it. Yeah, I'd say that I had a generally positive experience with it. I finished it in one viewing, which same is different from uh, my viewing of opening night, which I didn't finish. It it was good. I I wouldn't say that it was my. It's not my type of thing though. Um, See, I was when I was watching that. I I was thinking it wasn't your type of thing because the whole time I'm watching it, I'm like, 
oh yes this is that 70s uh, sleaze and grime that i love you know like taxi driver and stuff like that i think oh jacob might not be having a good time then it, it was engaging i i would say that the the first two-thirds were actually really enjoyable for me i agree the you know, getting to see, you know, his club and his passion for the club. And I enjoyed the scenes where he lost all of his money. I enjoyed the, the mobsters and stuff like that. Spoilers. Fuck it. It's old. So who cares? But after he killed the Chinaman, I wasn't as into the movie. It I agree. It felt a bit more like, okay, now business of, of plot and random gangster stuff has to happen. And he walks around a abandoned thing for a bit getting shot at and it wasn't all that interesting a chase scene either no i thought the editing was weird in this movie the i will say that the the actual killing of the chinese bookie was a good scene it was it was probably the best my favorite scene of the film um nice and suspenseful cassavetes has this really interesting way of shooting scenes where you never have like the master shot or anything yeah and often it's these long lenses that are really close to the characters or you don't get a good sense of of where spatial awareness of stuff and you're just with people and it can be disorienting and jarring at times and i don't think it works for everything some scenes work better than others for me well his movies in general are very character focused and i think that even is reflected in the cinematography they don't care about anything else and i'm okay with that when the characters are interesting and I did find Cosmo to be interesting. He was kind of interesting for me. I, I felt the other thing with the ending was I didn't see any greater point. Yeah, same. To any of it. Just kind of bummed me out, but I still overall didn't ruin it for me. So in the beginning, there's a scene where Cosmo is in uh, is in a bar. It's one of the first scenes. There's music playing. He's just wandering around drinking. And the camera work didn't work for me there because just close following him up. And I'm like, there's nothing happening. And you're disorienting me for some reason. But then in the scene where he's talking with the 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 bookie, not the Chinese bookies, the the mob, they're like, how are you going to pay your debt? The first scene with them, or actually any of the scenes with them, there's this claustrophobia to it. And it works because there's, you know, some tension there between Cosmo and these crooked men who he owes money to. Well, especially because they have that scene with the other guy that owes the money right before that. And this is where that editing thing comes in, because I think some of the editing is weird, but some of it's like weird but interesting. Where we have, you know, just Cosmo playing a game of poker, and then just cuts to this random guy, never seen him before, never seen him again, basically talking to the mob. And I'm like, okay, this is a very abrupt, but I guess good way of showing just who the kind of people they're dealing with. And I kind of liked it. Again, I like all the mob stuff. I thought it was a very good it was a very good setup. It was still very personal, very character driven, but you also felt a sense of urgency. Speaking of the editing, there's sometimes particularly with his filmmaking style that's kind of feels very much on the fly sometimes where he's just following the actors literally with the camera that there are some cuts that don't work for me. Yeah, I agree. Uh, that you you cut from one person and then the next shot is almost it could be in a completely different location like there's no i mentioned earlier no spatial awareness and i prefer a bit more traditionalism when it comes to shooting scenes not not too much more like this just sometimes it works for some things but i felt the style doesn't always work for me in some of these scenes 
That's the thing is that I, I just this is the first movie that I think in this whole list where I think why this one? It's a movie. Yeah, it just seems like a movie, uh, one of the many movies that are released, one of the many independent films that are. I mean, interesting. It's, a, it's a little more interesting than the average movie, but I thought, what about this movie is just great? I'm sure there's better Cassavetti's work alone. I really like A Woman Under the Influence, and I think the acting, particularly the character acting in that, on multiple levels, is just way above this film. And I can't remember if that's on the list or not. I know, because there's other. Opening Night is on this list. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah. A Woman Under the Influence is number 63 on the director's list. Oh, interesting. Okay. I really don't have much to say. The movie implies a lot with Cosmo, but it doesn't. it doesn't end up saying much. I do really like Cosmo, though, as a character. I find it interesting that a man who is so relieved and celebrating him finally paying off his debts immediately goes to another poker game. Yeah, which, you know, there's a lot of interest, small stuff that insinuates stuff about his character. Yeah. That is kind of hidden. You have to really be paying attention to figure out who Cosmo is. Because if you're not paying attention, he's kind of this just sleazy club owner who's yeah. doing stuff. Yeah, that, that's what I like about it. But there is interesting characterization hidden in some subtlety there, which... Which I think this is what this whole thing's about. It's an acting movie. I don't know. So the, the acting didn't stand out to me all that much. It was good acting. This movie just felt like normal to me. It was just a normal film that I didn't mind too much. Um, yeah, I think this is, uh, you know, especially with Uncut Gems right around the corner. been, you know, inter- watching and listening to a lot of Safdie Brothers interviews. And one character that they really enjoy is, uh, they don't call them losers. Um, they call them winners that don't win. And I think Cosmo very much fits into this mold. And I think it's just interesting, a man who's so sure of himself and prideful and flaunts his, you know, nice uh, uh, suits and women and club owners really just also gets shit on by everyone. And I find that dynamic interesting. I don't find it interesting enough to justify the entire movie. I do enjoy that dirty, do-it-yourself 70s aesthetic. But there's just so many other things in this movie that I can think of where other movies did it better. And I'm kind of like, eh, it wasn't a bad movie. It wasn't a great movie. It was fine. It was short enough. It was entertaining enough. It was okay. Part of the thing that directors like about this is I think there's a bit of uh, Cassavetes projecting himself onto Cosmo. Yeah. Or at the very least, I see some similarities, whether they were intentional or not, of someone who believes that they're doing some good stuff. They are... They're making art in whatever way they're doing it. Cosmo doing it with a strip club and... Uh, oh, yeah. Cassavetti's doing it with film. And they're not... Both aren't... They're not polished works. They're kind of dirty, gritty. But there's two people... You know, Cassavetti's was very... He felt that his work was important. That he really liked the acting work that he was doing and stuff like that. I think vaguely I know of, of his, his shtick as a director. And you can kind of see that in Cosmo... Of someone who... Well, I think the whole Cosmo and everything around him, it definitely reflects this. It's almost a meta-narrative in that sense. Um, just because not only Cosmo, but um, that weird chubby bald guy who is the singer on the stage. Yeah. He's so passionate about this little weird niche trashy thing that he does. 
and you can see that he wants to be a bigger star in this little world for himself. And he, you know, the singing, when he does that little musical number at the end, it's so strange and not very good, but very passionate. And, you know, they're getting booed at for whatever. And I'm like, oh, this is just Cassavetes in a nutshell. And I think thinking about that definitely makes it more interesting but not interesting enough. Well, even if it doesn't make it more interesting, you can definitely tell that, that that's part of the reason why directors voted for this. Yeah. Because speaking as a exceedingly amateur uh, short film director myself, I like movies like Eight and a Half and Fanny and Alexander where it's the director projecting themselves into the story. Yeah. And almost meta-narratives about their own creative process. And this is, this is Cassavetti's version of that. And... Just like the Oscars like awarding Oscars to movies about movies, this is directors awarding, uh, finding depth to a film that is okay, but finding depth because it has something to do with a little representation of the director who made it. Not the worst I've seen on the list, but not the greatest. I, I would actually watch this again. I think I would too. I think it's one of those things that you, it's very nuanced in a lot of ways. And I think a further watch, because again, I was much more entranced by this than I was the first time. And I do enjoy the aesthetic. The aesthetic is, it goes for it. It's interestingly shot, but there's some some beauty to it. The way that it's kind of frenetic and the shots and in the club and everything kind of really gritty. It does, it does look, it looks dirty, but it looks good in that kind of dirtiness. It gets you into the world. When you get around to watching Inherit Vice... Mm-hmm. There is a great little video on YouTube um, that compares and contrasts Inherent Vice to Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Because Paul Thomas Anderson said it was a huge influence, um, that movie in particular, on Inherent Vice. And there's a lot of shots that are composed and lit and staged very similarly to Killing of a Chinese Bookie. And it's just a little like four or five minute video doing side by side comparisons. And yeah, the influence is uh, real. It's an interesting movie with a, a strong central performance. If you like the kind of gritty 70s mob aesthetic and you like your character studies, yeah, watch it. You could do worse. Well, the question is, does it deserve to be on the list? No. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> it doesn't. I can't complain too much. Like, I didn't dislike it. Again, we don't, it's not bad. Not the worst on the list. But something else. But there's other Cassavetes movies on the list, which, you know, I'm like, why this one? Uh, there are a hundred. There are a hundred and six movies on the director's list. You just get rid of it, and then you have a hundred and five movies, and you're one and you're one closer to having. And you still have two Cassavetes movies. You only really need one, in my opinion. But we'll get to that when we get to it. What is next? Next time we have the Imitation of Life from 1956, directed by Douglas Sirk. Have you heard of this before? I have not. Because I have not either, but... This this might be the first one I've never even heard of. I've done a little research and it looks interesting. I'm excited to watch it. It's in English, too. It's English? Yeah. Easy. Uh, it's available for rent online. I could not find it streaming anywhere. And then we're also, I believe, most likely going to talk about Uncut Gems. Very excited. Or Little Women. Or both. We'll see. Well, most certainly Uncut Gems, because we're both going to most certainly see that in the Definitely next week. Uncut Gems. I'm very hyped for Uncut Gems. It opens up tomorrow in Tucson, so I'll, I'll see it before the well, end of the I would week. also go ahead and maybe, if you have time, maybe rewatch Good Time, because I want to talk about it a little bit. I might. I was very close to actually watching uh, 
under the Silver Lake last night. Oh, and I didn't, he didn't. But I might. There's a good chance I will watch it before the end of I'm the year. I'm telling you, it's much better. I hope I can see what you see in it. It's always better to like more things than to like less things. This is true. A very positive outlook. 